Last week, Christ continues to talk with Nicodemus. And if you remember, the problem with Nicodemus was not that he didn't have enough information. Jesus says, you don't believe. That's your issue. You don't believe. And so what we find out is uh, perhaps Christ closes the conversation by comparing himself to the bronze serpent. And he says, in essence, look and live. And you may think at this point, wait, he doesn't close this conversation with Nicodemus. It continues on to at least verse 21. Well, we really don't know. There, there's a view that actually he closes the conversation, or at least that's all is, that's dictated about the conversation at the end of verse 15. Why would I believe that? Well, for two reasons. Number one, from, from the here point on, verse 16 through 21, the author is speaking in past tense. You would figure if Jesus was still speaking with Nicodemus, he would be speaking in present tense. Secondly, Jesus normally refers to himself by his favorite title, the Son of Man. And yet in verse 16, there's this phrase, only begotten, or one and only Son. And some of you smart Alex out there will probably say, well, Jeff, just look at the quotation marks. The problem is the Greek text doesn't contain quotation marks or periods or exclamation points, or question marks. Those are things that we have to read into the text by reading context. And yet, suffice it to say this, it's written by the Spirit of God. So it's inspired, don't worry. It's all good. Today, we'll see John three sixteen. Now, there are 31,102 verses in the Bible. I'm just gonna take a stab at it. I think this is the most popular of them all, perhaps, and you may wonder, why preach a sermon over just this verse? I mean, I know this one. I got this one down. Well, like I said, there's a whole lot more packed into this verse than just what we read in the English. Martin Luther described it like this. He says, John 3.16 is the gospel in miniature. And then later on, he would say, it is a Bible in itself. As a matter of fact, on his deathbed, he quotes it three times in the Latin shortly before he passed into glory. And so a little bit longer introduction here, I want you to maybe ask yourself a couple of questions in, as your eyes would probably glaze over when you read John 3.16, because you know it so well. Question number one, have you lost the shock that God actually loves you and did not want you to eternally perish? That's a shock that should continue to reverberate throughout our systems, really throughout eternity. But perhaps many of us have grown accustomed to it. Of course he loves me. Why wouldn't he love me? You're in dangerous ground with that sort of thinking. Another question is this. Have you forgotten that there was nothing in you to commend you to God? Nothing, nada, no. As a matter of fact, you had many reasons for God to be repelled by you, including the fact that you were born a sinner and you continue to sin for the rest of your life. There's many reasons why God would have nothing to do with you. And yet God drew near and he saved you. And so seriously, even at the very beginning of the phrase, for God so loved, Calvin makes a great point on this, that he says this order is vitally important when you read this passage. That's the first one that comes out of the chute, for God so loved. What does he mean by that? He says, this order ought to be carefully observed, for such is the wicked ambition which belongs to our nature, 
that when the question relates to the origin of our salvation, we quickly form diabolical imaginations. I like that phrase. Diabolical imaginations about our own merits. Accordingly, we imagine that God is reconciled to us because he has reckoned us worthy that he should look upon us. But scripture everywhere extols his pure and unmingled mercy, which set aside all merits. Nor does he say that God was moved to deliver us because he perceived in us something that was worthy of so excellent a blessing, but ascribes the glory of our deliverance entirely to his love. It comes down to his love. J.I. Packer said it much easier and simpler when he said, there is a tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. He knows me for sins, heinous sins that I have yet to commit, and yet he loved me. So his point he's getting is the, God's love for us is eternal. Before the sands of time began to fall, before the first people came upon the face of the earth, were created, before the moon was created or the skies or anything, God had set his love upon us. It's done. Also, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 perhaps lines this out maybe one of the best ways in Scripture. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. These sort of songs, and Moy does such a great job in picking out all these different songs, and the band as well. Um, it should drive us into this arena of I did nothing to save myself. My role in salvation was being dead and lost. And God, in his love towards me, is eternal love. And not, his love is not only eternal, you know what else it is? Many things. It's immutable. And you go, okay, whatever that means. No, no. Immutable means something that cannot change or be changed. It doesn't change by itself. And other things that come around it can't change it either. I mean, God loves you for how wicked you really are, not because he loves your wickedness. He loves you in spite of your wickedness because the blood of Christ is on you. But even before the blood of Christ drenched you at a particular time in life, he loved you. Choosing, choosing you before the foundation of the world, he loved you. And at this point, you go, well, why did he love me? Oh, you're not gonna get any answers to that one because the Bible just says he chose us, he loved us, Deal with it, basically, okay? Verse 16, let's go ahead and dive into the text. For God so loved us. Remember, uh, I think I've mentioned this, but John in particular has a theology of love that's all throughout his gospel. God the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the world. Uh, the children, meaning us, we're to love one another. And so you might think, well, for God so loved the world, I got it. Well, not exactly, you see, this phrase, for God so, this sort of phrase, those three words, you see that nine times in the New Testament. None of them are translated as for God so loved. Uh, the way it works, it, it can be translated that way. For God so loved the world, meaning he had such an overwhelming love for the world that he gave. That's one way to take it. The other way to take it is in this way, he loved the world. In this way, 
Uh, as I told you, nine times you see it in the New Testament. Every other time it's translated, in this way he loved the world. Now to be clear, God so loved the world. He did. I'm not trying to take that out of our vernacular. But I want you to add in another aspect. He so loved the world. Well, how did he, how did he show it? He gave. He gave his son. In this way, he loved the world, as we'll see. You see, the Jewish nation, it's important to note, the Jewish nation would not be comfortable with this language. They would be comfortable with this quote. For God so loved the Jews. <sighs> Amen. And rightly so, they would probably say. By the time of the first century, anyway. And yet, you have to question, why did God choose the Jews? Was it because Abraham was so faithful to the Lord was it because the children of Israel, God looked down the corridors of time and he would see how much they wouldn't complain in the desert and they would never give themselves to idolatry? No, it, God tells us why. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Lord's choice. He loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. What oath had he sworn to his fathers? Would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's go back to Abraham or Abram. Where was he? He was in the city of Ur when God called him out. Uh, they have done studies of that part of the Middle East, and Ur was a center of the moon god worship. So Abram, in all likelihood, worshiped the moon god with his brothers, Nahor and Haran. And yet, why did God choose Abram instead of Nahor and Haran? And your answer is going to be, I do not know. It's God's love. God set his love upon him, and he says, go, I will show you, I will take you away from your family, I'm going to show you the land that I've chosen for you. So remember, the Jews, the Israelites, they, weren't, they were a chosen people because God set his love on them. It's not that they were better than any others. As a matter of fact, God has made it very clear, you were the smallest. Uh, and, and this would be very hard for the Jews, especially for the time of the first century, where Nicodemus is still shocked that Jesus said, you must be born from above or born again. And Nicodemus would say, I've told my people all along, you're born a Jew, just follow the law and, and you'll go. You'll be right with God. No, that's never been the case of following the law and you'll be right with God. But the Jews had, had built themselves up by the first century this time that they thought, of course God should choose me. Of course God sets his love upon me and not the Gentiles. Because we see in Acts 22 where Paul is arrested and then Paul says, hold on, let me speak to the people. And they begin to listen when he begins to speak to them in Aramaic, not just Greek. So they go, oh, he's one of us. And he begins to tell the story and how God saved him. And they listen until what point? Verse 21 and 22. And then he says that God tells him, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And what happens? <laughs> Up to this word, it said they listened to him. Away with this wicked fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. God cannot call Gentiles. He calls the Jews. Why? Because we're worthy. And the Jews would have to realize the same thing as we Gentiles. We're not worthy. There's nothing in us that makes us worthy to God. R.C. Sproul has a great point on this. He says, almost every theological error can be bottled down to one of these two mistakes. 
Number one, not thinking as highly of God as we ought. Number two, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. So be careful. The Jews are not the only ones that do this. We can do this too. You see, we should remember God came to save his enemies. Some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, according to Revelation 5, 9. Continuing on with the text, for God so loved the world. And you go, okay, check. I got that one. Let's move on. Well, hold on a second. God used, or rather, John uses the term world, which is in the Greek cosmos, in different ways. In John 17, 5, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, I am praying for them, meaning his disciples, his apostles, or not just, but all his disciples that would eventually follow them. He says, I am praying for them, and I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. But I thought Jesus loves, God loves the world, and Jesus says, I'm not praying for them. We have to say that the world actually has different meanings sometimes too. In John 12, 19, the Pharisees look around and say, look, the whole world has gone after him. Does that mean every person without exception? No, obviously that's not the case. But in order to be able to get through this sermon, then I probably say this. Well, suffice it to say that the world is, re- is referring to the world of humanity. It's effective for those who believe. And so the Lord loves the world. And so what does he do? Well, before we say that, we also have to look at go, what does the word love mean? And you say, Jeff, I'm really not liking you at this point in the sermon. It should be easier than this. I agree, but the Bible actually has rich gold mines that I want you to dig and not just scrape off the top. There's so much further below the verse. Uh, First off, you may have heard this, that God, you know, God loves everyone. He doesn't hate anyone. Mm, The problem is the scriptures push back on that. Uh, Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Wow, how does that work out? Well, Pharaoh in Romans 9, he, he says uh, through the pen of Moses, which is really the pen of the Holy Spirit, I've raised you up for this purpose, to show my power and that my name would be proclaimed through you. Basically, the reason why God raises up Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh is wicked, And it's Pharaoh's complete uh, human responsibility to not follow Yahweh, complete and utter. God says, I've raised you up for this purpose. I'm going to show my power that the wicked will suffer and I will save my people. And not only that, I'm going to do all this for my name. So you do have those sort of hate phrases or verses. So we need to actually take a look and do a long study, but we're going to give you a short one today about love. You see, D.A. Carson, he wrote a really good book on this by noting scripture, and he calls the the book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And uh, it is difficult because the way it works is that he's going to argue that you end up sacrificing sound exegesis or explanation of the Bible if you try to force all of these biblical references for love into just one understanding. 
You'll see what I mean. There's actually five, as far as we can tell. There's five different ways that God uses this word love. The first one uh, is this. It's the peculiar love of the father for the son and of the son for the father. Uh, it says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand, it says in John. We know for a fact that God loves us as he loves the son, but he gives all things into his hand. Like, we don't get to judge the world at the end. Yes, we will judge angels, but Jesus Christ is the one who judges the world. So it's a different kind of love that the father has for the son in the sense of what he hands over to him. That's one way that God loves. How else does he love? Number two, it would be God's providential love over all that he has made. Uh, Genesis 1, what does he call it? What's the adjective he gives to all of his creation? Good. Mankind, very good. And when does he take that back? Never. Not saying that we are not great sinners, but he calls it good. He loves his creation. How do we know that he loves his creation? Matthew 6, not a sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. God loves sparrows. Um, God loves whales. He loves Tyrannosaurus Rex. Why? It's his creation. He loves what he created. Um, by the way, and that's a good reminder if when our pet dies, is that God, this is God's creation. We didn't create this animal. We love him. It hurts when they, we lose them. But God loves his creation. A third way that God describes love is God's salvific stance towards his fallen world. Uh, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from the wicked ways and live. God has this like overwhelming love, not just for his creation, not for just for his son, not just for his creation, but also for the people of the world. Uh, Cole, who I mentioned from time to time, he quotes John MacArthur in The Love of God. I think he explains it well. Speaking for humans, we sort of have this love-hate toward the same person that are not mutually exclusive. To quote MacArthur, he says, we often speak of people who have love-hate relationships. There's no reason to deny that in an infinitely purer and more noble sense, God's hatred toward the wicked is accompanied by a sincere, compassionate love for them as well. So he, later on, he clarifies, what I'm saying is this, God in a real and sincere sense hates the wicked because of their sin. Yet in a real and sincere sense, he also has a compassion, pity, patience, true affection for them because of his own loving nature. And if you, at this point you go, I don't understand, how could God send anybody to hell if you say he loves the world? And my answer to that, I don't understand it either. And it's not my job to understand God. He's the creator, I'm the creation. If I can understand him according to scripture, I'm gonna use scripture. But in other areas, you just go, I have to trust the Bible is true. Remember, don't ever call God to the bar of human reasoning. Many of us do that. I'll believe him when I understand him. That's called doubt. That's called heinousness in God's sight. He loves faith, the people that trust him. It's not a blind faith. It's a it's, there's evidence for it, but we don't trust the evidence. We trust the guy who wrote the scriptures. Uh, number four, we have God's particular effective selecting love towards his elect. Malachi 1, 2, and 3, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. 
Scriptures don't back away from that. We can try to do some sort of, oh, I don't know, acrobatics to say that's not really what he's saying, but those Scriptures are there. Uh, We also have these phrases like, oh, Ephesians, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So his love for for those that eventually spend eternity away from him is not, you can't even compare that to the love that he sets upon his chosen ones from before the foundation of the world. It's incredible. It's incredible. Five would be this one, and please do not, elders, kick me out of my role here on this one. Because this one's tough. God's love is sometimes said to be directed toward his own people in a provisional or conditional way. Condition that is on obedience. Stay with me here. Lock the doors. Don't let anyone leave. I'm not a heretic. You're not, you're not loved by God because you've, you, know, you figured him out. And now you love him. And then he goes, okay, now I can love you. That's, that's, that's work salvation. We don't teach that. But you do have those passages in Scripture like Jude 21 that says, keep yourselves in the love of God. I'm not comfortable with that verse. I'm not comfortable with it either, but it's there. We don't back away from Scripture. We also see it in John 15, 10. Jesus says, if you keep keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So explain that, Jeff. Well, the best explanation I think I could have would be those who love the Lord obey him. Not perfectly. We stumble the whole way. Uh, not in a sort of legalistic, I have to capture his love. I have to impress him. I'm only as good as my last performance with the Lord. That's, those are lies from Satan. No, but you already have God's love, so obey him. And I think that's, that's perhaps a good way to look at it. There's several different ways the Bible describes God's love. I'm not saying all this to confuse you. I'm actually trying to give you clarity. When you come across those passages of Scripture that says love, and you go, how is that love? Well, there's a few different ways to look at it. And by the way, that that book is is ultimately based upon Scripture. I don't want to ever encourage you all to get books instead of I encourage you to read the Bible. That's really the book. But it's a good one. So he did all this. God so loved the world. We're not done yet that he gave his only son. We've seen this phrase in the past. It's the Greek word monogenes. It can be translated that he gave his only son, like unique only son, because we are his sons as well, sons and daughters. Or it can mean, what I think it means, is only begotten son. We've talked about this before in John 1. The way it is is that Jesus was, the son of God was eternally begotten of God the Father. He was not made He was with the Father from the beginning, but he was eternally birthed, if you will. Um, We were birthed at a particular time. For him, it was eternal. And if you say, well, that doesn't make very good sense, then I will quote Augustine again. Show me and explain to me an eternal father, and I will show you and explain to you an eternal son. And at this point, you go, I'm out of bullets. So he gave his only son. Let me make this one easy for you. Gave means to give something, okay? God the Father loved the world so much, here's what he gave. He gave what was most precious to him. Now, some of you, or perhaps many of you, have lost loved ones, and perhaps in in difficult ways that you will never understand. 
and the Lord will show you on the other side of the Jordan. But at this time, the heavens are silent. Why would the Lord take away? You need to realize something today. Is God the Father knows exactly how you feel. More so, how you feel. He lost someone that's most precious to him. His son. So find encouragement in that. Don't, think, don't let that be a reason to not walk closely with the Lord. He gave him, he gave him up. That whosoever or that whoever believes in him. And at this point you're thinking, okay, good, we're on the downside because believe is easy. It's just holding to a set number of facts. Mm, no, it's not. James 2.19 James, by inspiration of the Spirit, says, you believe in one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Why does James use that phrase? Because that's straight out of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. That was Israel's Shema. They would repeat that every day. And um, what James is saying by inspiration of the Spirit is, way to go. That's what demons believe. And we won't see them in heaven. No, Believe is something very different. I quote S. Lewis Johnson from time to time. He's an excellent theologian. And I'll quote him again, because I think he does a really good job of explaining believe. He says this, what does it mean to believe? In the New Testament, the word for believe, it's, it's the noun pistis, or it's the verb pisteo. The word pistis is a word that means to give credence to a person. But it's also used, catch this, with a series of prepositions. And when it is used with prepositions, it is slightly different meaning. When it is used with this preposition, for us, we would say whoever believes in him. In the Greek, it's, it's ace. But it, it's, that's the good meaning. That's a good, rather, translation in English. When it's used with the preposition ace, it means to believe into, literally. Into, unto, for, into. I had to memorize that over and over. Now, to believe into is to put one's trust in a person in the sense that there is a kind of mental movement toward that person and a reliance upon that person. This is the characteristic expression in the Gospel of John. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to, in your faith, in your trust, move toward him and rely upon him. The idea of motion is involved in this construction. That is to believe into him. It's a mental movement by which you turn from yourself and move toward him and rely upon him. That is to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the force of belief. That's why many times we will say, we won't just say believe, we'll say trust. That's a really, really strong synonym for it. You're entrusting your life into somebody else. He gives a story about it. I thought this story is helpful. There's a story of a skeptical physician who was administering to a Christian patient. He said to his patient, I could never understand saving faith. I believe in God, and I suppose I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not conscious of any doubts. I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I believe in the Bible, yet I'm not saved. What's the matter with me? The Christian patient said, well... A day or two ago, I, I believed in you. 
I mean, I believe that you were a very skillful physician. I believe that you could possibly prescribe for me and heal me. But then a few days, just a few days later, just recently, I discovered I was really sick. And so I came to you and put myself in your hands to be healed. In other words, I trusted you. He said, for a time now, I've been taking some mysterious stuff out of a bottle. I don't know what it is. I don't understand it, but I'm trusting you. You see the difference? It's not this mental ascent. Of course, I believe in Jesus. 2,000 years ago, he existed. He's coming back. Yes, of course, I believe those things. No, no, no. That's not a believer. A believer is one who has entrusted himself to the king of kings. That's my shepherd. Notice what happens is that he who believes in him should not perish. Nicodemus, keep in mind, has now heard that he will not enter the kingdom of God. He's not gonna, unless he's born above, born from above or born again. But now it's even worse. You're not only not going to enter the kingdom of God, you're going to perish. If Jesus is in fact talking to Nicodemus at this point, he's filling him in. He's saying, you're condemned. You're going to hell. You have to pay for your sins. And sadly, let me just be really frank with y'all. That's left out of so many gospel explanations. So many. They'll say something to the effect of, you need to believe in Jesus because if you don't, you won't go to heaven. And the unbeliever's like, I don't want to go to heaven anyway. My body's going to go to the ground. And we need to go further than that. And the reason why we have to go further than that is that Christ speaks about more about hell than he does heaven. Do you think it's important to him? Now, keep in mind, we can go too far with this. Uh, I don't want you to get so focused on hell you forget to give the gospel. Don't do that. Um, or somehow just giving them fire insurance. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Believe. No, no, no. That's not true belief most times. You you're actually introducing them to Jesus Christ. And I myself have been uh, confronted on this before when a guy said, Jeff, I think you just need to be more positive. I encourage you not to speak so much on hell. I respectfully disagreed and said, no, actually, we're called to. When we talk to people about Jesus Christ, we have to let them know what their future holds it's not just Christless eternity. They don't want to be with Christ anyway. It's a place of hell. It's a place that you have to pay for your sins. Once again, not to scare them into salvation because you really can't scare anybody into salvation. It's the gift of God. But, but to be clear with that, this is what's waiting for you. I care for you. Notice, not only should they not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. Now, it's interesting because the Jews, they thought of time as a succession of ages. A guy named Tasker writes about this. Um, these succession of ages ended in a final eternal age of blessing. It was called the age to come. And it was eternal, but they looked at time in that fashion, that certain ages. And the age to come is the eternal state. But you know, as believers... I have presently eternal life. Do you know that? If you're a believer today, you have it presently. You're not waiting on eternal life. You're waiting on the transformation of your body. You're waiting on being with Christ and the saints that have gone before. 
but you have presently, according to John 6, 47, he who believes has eternal life. I know you look in the mirror and you go, it doesn't look like it today. Agreed. But fact is, is that you have eternal life. It's, and it's gonna come in its full throttle one day. And you just don't know the day. Well, how, how should God have looked at us? If we were like God, how would we look at the world? To quote Luther once again, he says, if I were God and the world treated me the way it has treated him, I would kick the vile thing to pieces. And so would we. So don't ever think that somehow you can be more merciful than God or love more than God. How wicked of you. No, of course not. If you're an unbeliever today, I will tell you this. Your sin at present, puts you under the wrath of God. Adam will be preaching here in a few weeks and telling you about that. It's there. It's not like the wrath of God is coming. It is in its full throttle extent. But right now at present, you're under the wrath of God. And God in his kindness has given you an offer. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why would you not enter that rest today? Knowing that your belief is not just your mere mental assent. Right now you believe perhaps the way demons do. No, real, real faith, real trust, real belief is commitment. You're trusting the Lord. You're turning away from your sin and trusting him alone for your salvation. If you're a believer today, I would say this, God's love for you is eternal. Can't get rid of it. Can't walk away from this. No, if you're one of his own, it's eternal. His love for you is not only eternal, it's immutable. It cannot change or be changed. So I'll conclude with the questions that I had for you earlier. Have you lost the shock that God actually loves you and did not want you to eternally perish? Some of you have not been shocked in a long time, and I pray you're shocked today that God would set his love upon you and me. And secondly, have you forgotten that there was nothing in you to commend you to God? Nothing. You're not that cute. You ain't that smart. You're definitely not godly. It's all him. So what should that lead you to? I think it should lead you to three things. Number one, it should lead you to confession. That is agreeing with him, Lord, I am, I am sorry. I've not found my joy in you. I found it in the stuff of this world. You set your love upon me. I confess, I agree with you. I am a wicked sinner. Even though I'm now a saint, I still sin every day. And I'm sorry, Lord, I'm sorry. Help me to find my joy in you. Secondly, I think it should cause us to witness. Why would you not want the world to know these things? Somebody in this world told you these things. And we don't want to be like the, the Dead Sea, that good water goes in and we just stop and die. No, no. We want to be like the Jordan. Waters come in, and go right back out. We're sending it out all the time. But before we do that, we want to worship. We want to worship. 
not just great singing, which is awesome to hear, but also taking this time now to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And remember, that's the word worship. It means worth-ship, what the Lord is worth, and he's worth everything to us.